everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have a special treat for you guys. I know most of my listeners are nursing students, new grads, and even if you're not a nursing student or new grad, who of us have not at some point in our nursing career been insecure about IV sticks and trying to draw labs and that sort of thing? So I thought it would be a great idea to have Brian, the IV guy, on. Hello, Brian. Hey, Tina. How's it going? It's good. I am so excited about this episode. I have been looking forward to this. I reached out to Brian a few weeks ago because I was I found him on Instagram and I'm just absolutely fascinated with his videos. I've been showing everybody at work. Thanks. Oh yeah, it's no, it's it's awesome. We I was just talking to Brian about this. We have gone recently to our floor that where I work to all the nurses doing the lab draws. And the thing is, it is part of our scope of practice. It's part of our job. We do definitely need to know how to draw labs, obviously know how to start an IV. We shouldn't have to rely on, quote, IV team or, or whoever to come around and do it. We need to be able to know how to do this. So people like you who have specialized in this because you were, what, an EMT? Mm-hmm. EMT first. Um, but yeah. I never really worked as an EMT. I got a job right out of phlebotomy school. and. Oh. Then I just worked inpatient phlebotomy for eight years, and I taught phlebotomy for a few years as well. Yeah, so you really understand it. You you truly are an expert. (laughs) Thank you. You can really help other nurses in this area, and it's probably, I would say, at the top of the list of things that nurses are really insecure about. Definitely. It's just not an easy thing to do. I'm really excited to have you on here. Thanks. So tell everybody about how did you get started? Like, what... What is, you have an IV course, yes. you have an Instagram page, Facebook and everything. Just tell them about yourself. Well, I guess we could start at the beginning. I was a phlebotomist for, for eight years in a, a trauma center here in California. A few years into that, I started teaching phlebotomy at a, a local vocational college and then started teaching after nursing school, actually, at the JC. Did a junior college phlebotomy program as well. Mm-hmm. So phlebotomy was sort of my specialty But when I became a nurse, of course, IV starts kind of came naturally. So I started teaching within our hospital. People were asking me advice and and I sort of found a need for that kind of education. So many nurses have trouble with that, like you said, and and it's kind of a point of insecurity for a lot of people. Yes. And once you get to that insecure point, you kind of have even more trouble. You'll sort of rely on that that IV team if you have one. Mm -hmm. So I created a a video course just to teach people the, the fundamentals, the basics, some troubleshooting techniques, just venipuncture techniques um, in order to increase everyone's uh, first stick success rate. And then from there, the uh, the Instagram account sort of blew up. I think I've got almost 50,000 followers now. So I've got little little clips and videos, tips and tricks through the Instagram that mm-hmm. I usually share twice a week. Yeah, and that's, that's really cool. Even just those little videos are really neat. I like just watching the video. I just like watching the insertion. Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I'll be sitting there sometimes at work and I'm like, look at this. And the nurses will just kind of gather around while I'll just kind of watch. It's <laughs> absolutely fascinating. And then uh, invariably somebody will come along and be like, oh yeah, that's just the perfect vein. I'm like, oh no, he does geriatric patients too. Yeah, yeah. You're like, look, look, watch this. So you kind of know all of those things that people, I won't say maybe make excuses for, but like, it's just kind of sometimes it's like, oh, the veins roll or the... Sure. Yeah. It's all those things. And those, they real are, they're real things that happen. I mean, the people's veins 
tend to, I don't know if it's rolling or whatever they do. They seem like they, they you thought they were there and then they're not there when you exactly, go to try. Yeah. I don't know what happens, but something definitely happens. And But you understand those things and know how to maybe work around it to where your your success rate goes way up if you know all your little tips and tricks. Yeah, that's the plan. So far, most people have, have come back to me with some success stories. I love it. I think that the more people that can do this, this is probably... Foley insertions are probably pretty high up there, I would say, too, on people's list of things that cause anxiety as far as nursing goes. But that, I mean, there's only one hole there and it's already there. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) You have a predestined track. Right. And IV insertion is one of the few things that you have to actually puncture the skin. You're mm-hmm. you're yeah. doing something. And then even when you do that, you don't know exactly where you're going. It's just... Yeah. And you're making all kinds of decisions too. Like, mm-hmm. where do you really want this line? What it's What is it going to be used for? Yes. Uh, what medications are going to be running through it? Yeah. So how many... I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient going down for maybe CT and they were going to get contrast and the radiology technologist will call up and be like, where's that IV or mm-hmm. what gauge is it? And you're yeah. just like, ah, crap. <laughs> it's, a, it's a 22 in the hand. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work for contrast. So yeah. it's, oh, I guess I need to restick them, don't I? Or I've had them call up from CT and say, this patient's IV blue. Can you come down here and restick them or else we're going to have to send them back up to the floor? Oh, yeah. I get that all the time. Yeah, because you don't want them to miss this opportunity to get their CT or whatever that they're needing. Yeah. So then you end up going down there and then you're inserting an IV in front of all these x-ray techs. All the extra pressure. Talk about pressure. Yeah. (laughs) So I feel like with your course... And this is not something you you've paid you haven't not paid for sponsorship or anything like this. I asked you to come on here <laughs> no. because I genuinely feel like this will benefit my listeners and me too. But I do feel like that your course will help people. It will increase their just if nothing else, just their confidence level. Definitely. Well, yeah, I mean I've been a nurse for going on 5 years and what I found is I will have a, a little bit of a success rate and maybe like I don't know, I'll go maybe a month and think, I'll think, oh man, I've every time I've tried to stick someone, I've had success. Yeah. Or I've been doing all these phlebotomy draws and I've been doing really well. And I have all this confidence. All of a sudden, I've gone in and maybe the past two or three times I've missed. And then my confidence starts to wane. Yeah. And then you miss way more often. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a, it's almost like a domino effect. And then I just, it, get, it gets in your head. It's almost yeah. like a pitcher, like in baseball or a kicker in football. You, if it gets in your head, you find yourself going, unit expert, can you come in <laughs> and do this? I don't even want to try. And that's where I don't want people to get to that point where they don't want to try. Yeah, it's mostly just about that confidence. Mm-hmm. And once you know the fundamentals, you're more willing to try harder sticks more often. And then your success rate's going to go up from there. Yeah, I think there are people who maybe have a talent for it. They're just for sure. really good at it. Yeah. But I think that anyone can be good at it. It just may take you a little bit longer, more practice, studying more, learning more, watching more videos. Yeah, I agree. And I just don't want anyone to ever give up on it because it is a key part of being a nurse, a bedside nurse, or definitely working in an emergency room. Sure. And it's something that's very important. Definitely. So tell everybody where they can find you. So you can find me on Instagram. All you have to do is look up the IV guy. You can find me on online. You can just Google the IV guy. Uh, my website's theivguy.com. And then I've got the course through through teachable.com. So everything's hosted through Teachable. So you've got, if you actually sign up for the course, you've got access to it for 
a lifetime. As long as I've got it open, you've got access to it. So if I make any changes or add videos or add a lesson, anyone who purchased it will have access to that in the future. That's very nice. I mean, I've purchased courses before and actually spent a lot more than what your course costs. And then you only get it for like a year. Yeah. I don't know why people put time limits on it. Yeah. And you get it for a year. And then if they have like an update or something, you have to pay for like to, to renew or upgrade yeah, yeah. courses. So that's really cool that you're offering that to people. It's Thanks. definitely worth it for sure. And I just filed my paperwork on uh, Friday morning for continuing education. That was, I was so excited when I saw that <laughs> because that is huge. I feel like hospitals, especially hospitals who are going to require the nurses to do their own lab draws, Mm -hmm. they should be paying to have like an educational course like this to come in and really give nurses the the best opportunity that they can have for success. And then at the same time, not only are they helping increase their confidence, but also their CE hours. Yeah. That's huge. Most facilities will will reimburse you for education. So if it doesn't have CEs, sometimes they won't reimburse you for a course. If it does, they're they're much more likely to reimburse you for whatever cost of the course, usually up to, I think, 500 bucks, depending on the facility you work at. Yeah. I think ours is 500 per year. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. So you guys be paying attention to that. That'll be, when When do you think that's going to happen? Do you have any idea? Usually it takes them two to three weeks, I think, to approve that stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I have to create a quiz and a certificate and then it'll oh. all be official. So probably about a month and I'll announce everything awesome. through my email list and, and through Instagram. Perfect. So you guys go on and follow him on Instagram if you're interested in this and follow him there. So we have another sponsor for Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I am so thankful for our nursing school out of the University of Portland School of Nursing because I love nursing students. And so when I was approached by the School of Nursing, I was so excited about it and just so honored. So thank you guys so much, University of Portland, for supporting us and all the wonderful, encouraging things that you've said to us. And of course, if you guys want to go to an awesome nursing school, go on over to Portland. It sounds like the coolest thing in the world to me. Good food, too. Yeah. Coffee houses. (laughs) As far as the eye can see. So, Brian, I guess we'll get into our... Bad. It's a bad doctor story this week. And this is, it's a story that I kind of have always had in the back of my mind to do at some point. And because of this past year, some things that have happened, I felt like this was a really good time to do this. So we, a few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about a story of some nurses who were, who were going to bat for a doctor who had been arrested back in the summer and charged with 25 counts of murder because he had prescribed excessive amounts of fentanyl for patients that were end-of-life care. And the doses of fentanyl were what the prosecution is saying were inconsistent with even end-of-life care dosages. And so he has been charged with 25 counts of murder. It's a lot of murder. Oh my goodness, 25 <laughs> counts. And it, it's over the past like several, a couple of years. Sure. So the story I was actually talking about was the nurses that were stepping up. I think it was about 10 nurses who were stepping up and, and kind of going to bat for that doctor. Mm. I've had a few emails about this. And the thing is, people sort of land pretty firmly on one side or the other who are kind of close to this story. There's people in Ohio who obviously know this guy and they listen to this podcast. So they've been all giving me their opinion about it. And the thing is, none of them want to really come right out and be, they don't want to be involved in it. So I can't necessarily say this person said this or this person said that. 
So I want to be careful about that. We'll speak generally. Yes. I'll just say that there's just people on both sides of his court. Definitely. I don't know. It's just, it's complicated. But that story in and of itself was more about the doctor prescribing dosages for a patient who's at end-of-life care and then the nurses administering the doses. And then Mm -hmm. that's one thing. What we're going to talk, talk about today is... Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Jack Kevorkian, who his name has sort of become synonymous with Dr. Death or physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I barely remember actually watching it. You know, I was a teenager when that big news story was hitting and, and he was mm-hmm. talking to all the reporters. Mm-hmm. See, so yeah, I was I was still pretty young, but I do remember it. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he was older when all this stuff kind of happened. He had been doing some things for a while. Yeah. So he was born in 1928. He was kind of up there in age when really all this stuff started started happening. Um, and, and I guess where he was getting attention from the media. But he was born Murad Kevorkian. He was born on May 26, 1928 in Pontiac, Michigan. He was the middle child of three children. He was like a, a boy in the middle of two girls. And he was, his parents were Armenian immigrants. And they had fled Turkey just after World War One, and were actually, his dad was smuggled out of Turkey. And a lot of his, a lot of Jack Kevorkian's extended family were killed and really massacred during all of the things that went on during that time. So his parents were just very fortunate to really have escaped. Yeah. I didn't know all that. Yeah. His parents were very religious. They were Christian and they were very strict. Went to church like every Sunday and Sunday school. Well, Jack was kind of one of these people who, from a very young age, liked to argue about things and would like, if he saw inconsistencies in like in anything, he would want to talk about it. And he would challenge his Sunday school teachers about some of the teachings and doctrines and that sort of thing. And it bothered him that he had this extended family that was essentially slaughtered in Turkey and that he he felt like it didn't really marry very well with the idea of a loving God who had a, a son who could walk on water and that sort of thing. And to him, it was just very conflicting. And he would ask all these questions every week in Sunday school class and just challenge the teacher. So by the age of 12, he pretty much just gave up on. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where his agnostic beliefs started. Exactly. Exactly. At some point in an interview with Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper just kind of was like, hey, do you believe in God or not? Yeah. And yeah, he was kind of like, I don't know. Do you? Or or, is there a God? I think he was sort of like, I don't know. I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. So... That's something I can kind of sink my teeth into, and I can't, I can't see God. And he was sort of one of these people that I think he had to see it, you know. Yeah, I like that he still leaves it up to a question, though. He's not yeah. sure one way or the other, so I he like chooses science as a basis of his belief system. Exactly, rather than just definitively saying, "Absolutely not, I don't believe in that." Exactly. So. All three, his sisters and and he were very intelligent and did very, very well academically. But he also was really into the arts and he uh, played piano and he was into painting. Yeah, did you see some of the paintings he did in prison? No, I didn't even see that. Yeah, yeah, there's some somewhat famous ones now that he's he's gone. Oh, uh, really? They were all fairly gory. Oh. (laughs) I know. That doesn't surprise me because he obviously was just fascinated with death. Mm-hmm. It, he was closer to it than most people. Yeah, he was fixated. He almost became fixated. I thought it was interesting that by the time he was in high school, he had taught himself German and Japanese. Wow. I mean, that to me is crazy. His 
not surprisingly at all, his classmates did not connect very well with him. <laughs> I think he they kind of saw him as just this eccentric, sort of like bookworm kind of person. You know, being a nerd back in the day was probably not as popular as it is now. Yeah, no, now it's cool. It's more acceptable and cool. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so he also was not much in uh, into romance. He felt like that was really an unnecessary diversion <laughs> from, <laughs> from his studies. So when he was 17, he graduated from high school and went to the University of Michigan. He started out, he was going to be in um, a civil engineer. And then he he said halfway through his freshman year, he got bored with it. Of course. I know. I'm just like... <laughs> too intelligent. That's insane. Yeah, it's too much math. I can't imagine just being, I don't know, being able to just take all there is to know about engineering and just be like, okay, I've learned all of that and I'm totally bored now. You know, what else you got? <laughs> yeah. Well, medicine's the right place to be then. Yeah. It's ever changing. Endless. Absolutely. So he started focusing on botany and biology. Hmm. And of course, then he decided to go to medical school and graduated from medical school in 1952. So now we're in the 50s. He got a specialty in pathology. But then in 1953, the Korean War broke out and he served 15 months as an army medical officer in Korea. Hmm. Yeah. So he was in the army. I guess everything was sort of on hold at that sure. point. And then he, everything kind of settled back down and he did his residency back at the University of Michigan in the 1950s. And he really became, at that point, really fascinated with death. And in fact, the act of dying itself, he started visiting patients who were terminally ill, and he would photograph their eyes trying to capture the very moment that they died. I wonder if that stemmed from his time in the army, like watching other people die in a different context. Ooh, I wonder. You know, that's a good point. It's It could be that that sort of sparked the interest yeah. there. But he said, so when he was doing this, I, he, 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 he gave one reason at the moment that he was doing it, it was like, well, I'm trying to study this so that I can better understand when, whether people are, if someone has fainted or if they're in a coma or maybe if they're at a point of where resuscitation is futile and we, we mm. shouldn't, we should no longer. So that was how he sort of justified yeah. doing this. But then later on, he admitted that he was just, inter it was just interesting to him. And he was fascinated with it, with the idea of, of death and, and, and researching it and studying it because it was considered pretty much a, a, a taboo subject, sure. I guess, to be. Yeah. And he loved it. He was, he loved anything controversial, taboo. He wanted to, he wanted to challenge people. He definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> So then he starts, he decides he wants to propose for death row inmates to be able to be used as subjects of medical experiments while they're still alive. Sure. Which he they did this, a lot of, I think, in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Yeah. Well, he called it terminal human experimentation. So his what he said is they're condemned. They can, in their last... Um, act before death, they can provide a service to humanity. Sure. And, and they can volunteer. Now, this is not something he wasn't proposing yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there was there was a whole other level that Dr. Kevorkian 
would have gone to, but he knew <laughs> that other people would, would not get it. That he couldn't even get them this far that yeah. they wouldn't. I always feel like there's another level there somewhere. Probably. <laughs> I think he's a maybe a dark yeah. person underneath it all. Well, I remember when I was younger, when I first heard his name, I associated his name with Dr. Mengele, who was the, the German <gasps> oh, yes. doctor. The Holocaust. Yes. Yeah, who did oh, all my those goodness. experiments on twins and... and mm -hmm to see if they one can feel the other's pain, that kind of stuff. Oh my goodness, so when I was yeah. really young, I just sort of melded the two in, in my mind. Um, but learning more about him now, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a huge separation. There is a huge separation, but I've, I don't know. And I, and I guess, you know, I mean, I'm probably making assumptions here. It's just that he is living in, you know, in the United States under different laws, during the time when Dr. Mendela was doing what he was doing, mm -hmm. he was around, it was acceptable sure. to the state that he was working for. You know, he was working for the state. He was working for pretty much Hitler. Mm -hmm. So he, it was acceptable. And so he got away with things. And I just wonder, because of all of the things that Dr. Kevorkian was proposing and the things that he was for, I just wonder where his limit would have been. I don't know. I think his basis, though, was always to help people. It was never to cause any more harm, mm -hmm. whereas Mengele definitely was not. Mengele in, in Germany, obviously, because you can, from his ver from the acts that he did, sure. clearly, you know, human life meant nothing to him. And he had no problem with just putting people into categories and deciding these people are not exactly. worthy of life and all of that. And Dr. Hervoyke, Dr. Kevorkian, I feel like there, he was, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, and, and part of the thing is him learning German is what, and during that time period, is what kind of made me think, wow, where was he going with this? Yeah, I maybe, don't know. Maybe. I mean, if so, he was in the technical field, then that was mm -hmm. definitely, because English, German, and Japanese were the three most technical languages. So if he was going yeah. to do engineering or, or something technical, those would be the mm -hmm. three that you want to learn. Right. And Germany at the time of, at this time, right when all of this was going, well, but before, uh, pre-World War II, they were at the height of, definitely in European, height at the height of civilization. They were definitely. at the height of technology. They they were, and that's kind of scary. You know? <laughs> I mean, bit. stop and think about the fact that they, that this whole society, they're supposed to be the enlightened ones. And sure. This is this whole uh, all of these people are able to to get to this point. It's kind of horrifying. Things and could have gone almost, very differently. Oh my gosh! And <laughs> it almost it makes you kind of think we really need to be thinking about slippery slopes and where we can go sure. um, in society sometimes. Because you know you start out one place thinking you're a really good person, and then you start compromising on your principles, even just a tiny little bit. And then before you know it, you get all the way to the end of the road and you're way off course. Sure. You know? From what I've read about Kevorkian, though, he never really wavered on his beliefs. He always stayed fairly yep. consistent. I have to agree with that. Everything that I saw, he never, I never saw him. He, he was very consistent with, uh, with, where, having a what, problem? with what he believed. And I never saw him or any evidence in any of the, uh, all of the different accounts that I read of his life. I never saw him at any point deviate from where he stood as far as what he believed. And I don't know where he came from. Because just like with him saying at one point that he, 
he was fascinated with death and taking photographs of people dying because he wanted to do the experiments for one reason. And then later on, he admitted, yeah, I was kind of just, inter- it was interesting. I really just wanted to do it because it was taboo, you know, that kind of thing. I just, I don't know. Sometimes that when I'm reading, oh, I was reading some of the things that he was proposing, like experimenting on death row inmates. And I know he was proposing that it was painless. You give them pain medicine sure. and you, it's on a volunteer basis. But it definitely sounds bad. It does. And I, my thing is, I know from other stories that I've done on this podcast and from research that I've done, even in school, when I was researching the death penalty, I know that there are people who have been put to death who were innocent. And there are people who are on death row right now, I'm just sure of it, who are innocent. And there are people who were, the proof that they were innocent was there before they were even actually executed. But because of our criminal justice system, the way it is, it we weren't able to stop it before it happened. It's just, it drives me crazy. So when I th- when I hear, well, they're death row inmates, yeah, you know what? Sometimes people are on death row and they're, and they're not guilty. True, true. So I just don't, I don't like that we just kind of like use inmates, people who are in prison as if their lives are expendable or if they don't. Yeah. Because pe- sometimes people, for one thing, sometimes they're absolutely innocent. There are a lot of innocent people in prison and in, in, and on death row. And for another thing, sometimes people just make mistakes True. in life. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that makes their life expendable. But he was proposing that it was voluntary. It's not yeah. like he was proposing. And maybe you he know, was, that, I mean, he's a smart guy. He probably realized all of that, but yeah. came to the conclusion that we were going to kill them anyway, regardless of whether they were innocent or guilty. Um, so then proposed those ideas. But who knows? Well, I know. And I, I have to say that because the way I, the way my brain tends to work is I, w- I want people to have as much autonomy and freedom of choice as they possibly can have without impacting another person. I don't want someone else, I don't want my beliefs to impact someone else. I don't feel like that's, that's right either. Sure. But I feel like if I want to do something, it's my own body, I should be able to do that. I, it's not anybody's business what I want to do. I agree. So the part of me that is that person <laughs> wants the inmate to be able to choose for themselves what they do. So I kind of get that. Definitely. But then there's the other part of me that it's, that feels like it is a slippery slope when you go to having the state experimenting on people. Anything that gets the government involved, I think is probably a bad idea, (laughs) especially with end of life care, especially with uh, body autonomy. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, so here we are with him and he's kind of, he's making a progression really in his, he's sort of gone from being fascinated with death and watching people during his residency who are dying. And then that leading to more and more of a fascination till he gets to a point where there's a group of Russian scientists who I guess are experimenting with blood transfusions and they're transfusing blood from corpses into live people. Oh God. <laughs> So he gets, of course, I mean, I feel like if he got wind of anything controversial or just like unheard of, then he was just going to jump on it. So as soon as he finds this out, he's like, oh, I want to be a part of this. This sounds interesting. Wow. And so that's what he does. He got kicked out of the University of Michigan because he was. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They were like, now, if you're going to continue with this idea of using death row inmates as experimental subjects, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And rather than him backing off, 
off of that, he just got kicked out. So then he went to another internship. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's when he kind of got interested in this whole blood transfusion thing. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And he started experimenting with this. There results were actually really successful. And he believed that if you were able to to do this, it could help save people in war. Sure. I wonder what the time limit was like. Like how long after death was it still feasible? I know. I kind of was wondering all that too. I didn't really look real far into it. But it, I was really curious about it. I thought, wow, why haven't we? Why haven't we done this? Yeah. Because no different than really than people saying, "Hey, if I'm dead, take my organs." Sure. Why couldn't you just say, "Take my blood"? I absolutely, of course, you can. It's got to be a, a narrow window, though. It's got to be for sure. Going down a Google rabbit hole later. <laughs> I mean, but still, it's it's still a narrow window for organs as well. So yeah. he actually ended up pitching his idea to the Pentagon. And this is just before and during the Vietnam. Vietnam lasted a long daggum time. Mm -hmm. So he really figured it could be used in Vietnam. They did not give him a federal grant to continue the research. So they pretty, it pretty much solidified his reputation as being kind of out there. He's just the medical shit disturber now. Exactly. And so everybody was really just afraid of him and they just kind of stayed away. And he got infected with hepatitis C because of this. Oh. So I'm like, well, was he giving himself blood transfusions yeah. from these corpses? Hmm. I don't know. Because even just dealing with blood, obviously, you can still get hepatitis C sure. if you have an open wound or something. But I still was kind of wondering, is he doing that to himself? Maybe. Maybe. So he ends up, he qualifies as a specialist in pathology. He publishes lots of articles, of course, about his philosophy on death. And then he ends up settling down in Detroit, Michigan, or or near Detroit, Michigan, and opens up a clinic. But his business didn't really do well. He like openly despised doctors, I guess, greediness in a way. Mm -hmm. He did. He really did. He moved to California. He he started working a couple of part-time jobs as pathologist, as a pathologist in Long Beach. Mm. And then he couldn't get along with the chief pathologist. And he, yeah, like you just said, he felt like other physicians were afraid of his radical ideas and they were more concerned with money and status and that sort of thing. And so he was just frustrated by them. I think he felt like they were sabotaging his career. He was just always at odds with other physicians because he was not on board with their kind of more mainstream, do your residency at a hospital, open your private practice, have your patients and do everything the way you're supposed to do it. And he was radical. And so he was frustrated by the system. He did end up, he said he wasn't all that into romantic relationships, but he was engaged for a short time. But one article that I read about him said that he found his bride to be lacking in self-discipline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my. That's a very engineering way to put it. Yeah, that's how he was, I think. He was just sort of like black and white. Mm-hmm. So he was by himself. He would sleep in his car sometimes. He was pretty much living off social security and just kind of different when you think about somebody just so intelligent, so talented, has all this potential. But not ever finding it, success. Mm-mm. Or maybe maybe that was success to him, yeah, you know, because he's pushing, t- pushing forward his agenda and pushing forward the idea, what he felt like was important, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So in 1986, 
He gets wind of some doctors in the Netherlands that were euthanizing patients who wanted to die, and they were using lethal injections to help these people die. Mm -hmm. So then that got him on that bandwagon. And it's just kind of like it went along with his fascination with death. And it was another controversial, of course, topic, another taboo subject that he could pounce on. And that started his new passion. So he he knows that if he administers medicine to someone who wants to die, that he's going to be arrested for murder. So he develops a machine that he called Thanatron. Have you ever heard this before? I knew about the machine. I did not know about the name. I I didn't either. (laughs) When I saw that, I was like, Thanatron, that sounds like something out of like a Marvel movie well, or something. Well, it wasn't the 80s, right? <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and so it was pretty much a suicide machine because he could just set it up. And he said it cost like $45 for the materials to make this machine. Hmm. The word Thanatron just means instrument of death. Clever. Yeah. <laughs> there were three bottles. The, the three bottles would deliver these doses of the one of them was like saline saline and then another one was some sort of pain medication and then potassium chloride so that would do it yeah that would do it so then what he would do is he would get it all set up and then tell the patient how that they could administer it themselves Mm -hmm. so that was his suicide machine the media of course hears about this and it just kind of all blows up in 1990 when the very first person comes along her name was janet atkins she was 54 years old She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she was still, you know, aware of what was going on, knew what was in front of her. Yeah. And there's no going back. It's not like they're going to get better once they've reached a certain point with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And she knew this. So I thought this was so interesting. Before she was even diagnosed, she was a member of the Hemlock Society, which was an organization that advocates for volunteer voluntary euthanasia Mm. for terminally ill patients. And then she became terminally ill, which is... But aren't we all terminally ill? That's yeah. one thing. No one's getting out of this thing alive. But how close are we to death? And what's the quality mm-hmm. of life like between now and then? Yeah. yeah. And do we get to choose for ourselves? Exactly. You know, that's that's the thing is whether or not we get to make the choice. So she, after she was diagnosed, she started searching for someone. She wanted to try to find an alternative because she did not want to have to go through that. She heard about Dr. Kevorkian and she contacted him and wanted him to use that machine mm-hmm. on her or, or help her to be able to use it. He agreed. He met her at a public park. He had a van, a Volkswagen van. Of course, it had to be. <laughs> <laughs> at least it wasn't those big Chevy vans with no windows. That makes it a little bit more hippie. It's the cool hippie yeah. van, yeah. And he hooked her up to an IV, and she administered her own pain medicine mm-hmm. and the poison. He put... He hooked her up to the the saline, and then she was the one that administered the pain medicine and then whatever, I guess it was the potassium chloride. And within five minutes, she died of heart failure. Sure. So, pro tip, <laughs> potassium is a very serious exactly. drug. You've, you've got to be careful with it. That's why it says high uh, risk on the side. Yes. So, obviously, this was on purpose. It was intentional, but there's some accidents that can happen as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, be careful. Be careful. There's no easy way to get potassium into your body. Orally, you can take a pill. It's it's as big as a horse. <laughs> you can take a liquid. It will burn all the way going down. It hurts. It's just painful. You can put it through your IV. It will rip through your veins like no other, even if you 
have it infusing concurrently with with saline, it's just awful. Definitely, it's not an easy thing to get into the body. No. So hence the pain medication first, I'm sure. Yes, for sure. So he did this, and then that was his first act of physician-assisted suicide. It was Janet Atkins. Oh, that was his first. That was the first one. So then the state of Michigan, after finding this out, charged him with her murder. Then they dismissed it because they didn't really have a really clear-cut stance on physician-assisted suicide or assisted suicide at all. And so the case was dismissed. So then in 1991, a judge there in Michigan issued an injunction that barred him from using his machine. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they suspended his medical license. So he wasn't able to get the medications. He couldn't, if you don't have a medical license, sure, you can't really yeah. easily get, you know, potassium chloride or the pain medicine that you need. So then guess what? He decided to develop another way. He came up with a new machine that he called it the Mercitron. <laughs> He was really into Tron, I guess, in the 80s. I know, I know. It would deliver carbon monoxide through a gas mask. Oh. Yeah. And I I saw one interview with him where he talked about the first time he used this. And he put this, it's kind of like, I think he sort of described it almost like a bubble kind of thing over the person's head. Mm-hmm. It kind of just freaks me out just thinking about it. Yeah. And that he said that the person kind of panicked. And so he had he took it off. And that he was like, we, we can do this another day. And then the guy said, no, I want to do it. I, I want to get this done now. So they went through with it. It just sounded a little bit terrifying. Yes. Then the next year, Michigan passed a law. So all the stuff is happening because of this one man. Michigan, the whole state of Michigan is just panicking and like yeah. passing laws and all stuff because of this one man. So he really had quite an impact. He definitely did. Mm-hmm. So... This law was specifically uh, designed to stop his whole campaign, and they outlawed assisted suicide. And so because of that, they arrested him twice that year, and he was let out on bail. His lawyer argued that a person can't be found guilty of criminally assisting a suicide if they administered medication with the, quote, intent to relieve pain and suffering. Mm. So... Even if it increases the risk of death, the way the law was written in the state of Michigan, because I guess he could say that he was intending to relieve pain and suffering, it was a little bit of a loophole for him to be able to get out of. And so he wasn't convicted of the the two times he was jailed Hmm. that same year. So he was prosecuted four times for assisted suicide. He was completely acquitted three times. And then there was a mistrial in the fourth trial. And he actually was disappointed because he said that he wanted to go to prison because he wanted more attention to be brought to the whole topic. Yeah. Yeah. And what he felt like was hypocrisy because to him, and I don't know if you were able to watch any of the videos of like interviews, but one thing that, and you were saying how he was always very consistent and how you felt like he was, he had good intentions or he felt like he was doing good for people. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch the videos of him being interviewed, one thing that will def- that definitely struck me in that way was when he talked about how people who were on the other side of, of this argument would were either legislators who were more concerned about the letter of the law than they were the people mm-hmm. who were suffering yeah. or people who were religious who were more concerned about their religious beliefs than they were the people suffering. Definitely. Those are the two things that combat science most often. Right. Exactly. And it, it's hard because 
especially when it comes to religion, I, I can empathize with people who maybe if it's their religious belief and they really are very sincere about their beliefs and they believe it's wrong, I, I can understand them having a conviction about that. I don't like it when people try to hold other people to their religious beliefs. That I don't like. Sure. As long as it's not impacting someone else and you're not hurting someone with your religious beliefs, you do what you need to do, you know, yeah. but don't try to hold other people to that. That's that's where I kind of draw a line. Me too. So that's where he was. He didn't like the hypocrisy and he would talk about that quite a bit. It bothered him. In 1998, they at Michigan, the state of Michigan and Dr. Kevorkian definitely did not have a good relationship. That was good. They, <laughs> once again, the legislature was getting together to combat Dr. Kevorkian. They enacted a law that made it a assisted suicide a felony, mm. punishable by a maximum of five years in prison and a sentence of $10,000 fine. And they also closed that loophole. Mm. And so he continued on assisting patients in their deaths. And they continued on pursuing him <laughs> with criminal charges. And so at some point, he, in 1990, later on that year, 1998, he allowed CBS the news program 60 Minutes, mm -hmm. to actually air a tape of him that he made giving a lethal injection to a patient. The guy's name was Thomas Yauk or Yuk. I'm not exactly sure how you say his name is Y-O-U-K. Mm -hmm. He was diagnosed with ALS. One disease that I can think of that is worse only because it's literally described, if you look it up and look up the, uh, look up the official website about it, is Huntington's. Mm -hmm. Huntington's is described as being a combination of ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's all in one. That sounds horrible. Oh my gosh, I know. But ALS, oh wow, just awful. Just a horrible, horrible disease. So this guy is diagnosed with ALS. He does not want to go through the things that he knows he's going to have to go through mm -hmm. with this disease. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. And so Dr. Kevorkian agrees to help this man die. And so he wanted to be arrested. He wanted to go to prison for this because he wanted the publicity. Mm -hmm. Just to get the word out. Exactly. He actually delivered the lethal injection and, and videotaped himself doing it and sent it to CBS. Yeah. And they aired it on 60 Minutes. And so and he, he even not only he went so far as to in the interview for this 60 Minutes episode, he even sort of called out the prosecutors, kind of taunting them almost. Mm. He kind of dared them. Yeah. He was like daring them to pursue him. And they obliged. Well, by that time, he was very good at riling people up, I'm sure. <laughs> he knew just what to do exactly. and just what to say. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he served as his own legal counsel. The thing is, he probably figured, if I get an attorney to do this, they might be too good at their job. Oh, he didn't want to get out of it. Right. I mean, he didn't want to get out of it. Because, you know, they always say, if you serve as your own counsel, you have a fool for a, an attorney. Mm -hmm. So they always, you know, advise against that. But I'm sure he knew that. And he figured, I'm going to use this as my platform and my opportunity to say whatever I want to and get my voice heard. And he knew that he would end up being convicted. So sure enough, March 26, 1999, a jury in Oakland County convicted him of second degree murder and illegally delivering a controlled substance. And then that April, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Wow. With the possibility of parole. 
So he went through the, the appeals process. He was not successful in any of his appeals, but he only served like eight years because he was released for good behavior. It's kind of interesting because I, he promised not to assist in any more suicides. I mean, did if there's any people from prison listening to this, did did you guys ever think that if you just promised you'd never do it again, you would, they would just let you out? Because I didn't know... I didn't know that was the thing. They probably promised that on the first day. I mean, I don't really understand that, but that's what it said. He promised not to assist in any more suicides. And since he was good the whole time he was in prison, they let him out. He served two years after that of parole, and then he was free. Wow. Yeah. But he was suffering from liver damage because of that hepatitis C. That will get you in the end, you know, especially back then because they didn't have some of the medicines that they have now. Uh, So he didn't have a whole lot of time left to live, but he did start touring and lecturing. He kept speaking out about his position on assisted suicide. He, I felt like he, in the interviews that I was watching of the later years, like I think around 2010 was the one I was watching. I feel like he was kind of careful to not come right out and say he was actively assisting. Yeah. But I almost... You know, I almost, did you watch that? He was almost. He had said he really didn't want to go back to prison. Yeah. He didn't want to go back to prison, although I'm like, mm. <laughs> so he's not, maybe some, maybe something was going on, but he wasn't being quite at, like videotaping it and sending it to the news media. So they made a film, HBO made a film about his life. It was called You Don't Know Jack and it came out in April of 2010. It starred Al Pacino as Dr. Kevorkian. And then Susan Sarandon and John Goodman were also in the movie. I didn't see this. I didn't Have either. This movie? I didn't even hear about it till just now. Till I hadn't heard about it until I was doing all this research. And I was like, how have I not heard about it? I want to watch this movie, but I didn't have time. Yeah. <laughs> I want to watch it now. It looks good. It really does. Like if you go back and look, just in looking at like the previews and the little clips that they would show. I mean, Al Pacino and Susan Sarandon, come on. It's worth it. Mm-hmm. I'll add it to the list. Yeah. I want to watch it for sure. So on June 3rd, 2011, he was 83 years old. He died in Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. And he had been in the hospital for about two weeks. He was having kidney and heart problems, I'm sure stemming from his liver problems, I would guess. Yeah. Anyway, and um, that was it. That was the end of Dr. Death, Dr. Kevorkian. We've done a few Dr. Death stories on here, one of which was the doctor from Texas who is literally Dr. Death from the, the podcast. Oh, yeah. I think the Dr. Death is sort of like angel of death. There's not just one. It's like... Yeah, and that's what they called the nurse. You remember the nurse serial killer? They called him the angel of death. Charles Cullen? Uh, I think so, yeah. The thing is, angel of death stories... There are a lot of them, yeah. unfortunately. I've been doing some research lately on the Holocaust, and it's weird. You and I were talking mm-hmm. about yeah. before, but I really have been watching documentaries and doing some research on doctors and nurses' roles in the Holocaust. And I'm just horrified at sometimes what people in the medical profession, people in general, but I mean, come on, you've signed up to help people. What are you thinking so that's our bad doctor story. We got through the whole doctor <laughs> We did it. <laughs> so our good doctor story is sort of related because keeping in line with a, our theme and physician-assisted suicide, I thought it would be interesting to see the other side of it. Because mm-hmm. this is more, Dr. Kravorkian is almost somebody that's too easy to hate. He's It's too easy because he's so controversial and you can find reasons to be against his stance because of the way he was. He just was sure. not the 
most likable of people. I liked him. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like he, you know, you, you can like him, yeah. but I, I feel like he just, he can rub people the wrong way. Definitely. He just kind of went, he was a little abrasive. He just, I don't think he was a people person at all. No. Did you watch the one with uh, Bill Mayer? No. Being real or get real with Bill Mayer. Yeah, I know that. I know Bill Mayer, but I didn't. Uh, maybe a year before he died. It was very good. And he was actually making jokes and playing along with, with Bill's sense of humor. Oh, wow. Yeah, he has a very sarcastic sort of oh, very dark. different take yeah. on very dark take. So I could I could only imagine what that was like. But that made him a little bit more likable, at least for me. Okay, I could see that. I could definitely see that, seeing that side of him. So this doctor in California that I found, I thought it was interesting because he was diagnosed with cancer. This is Dr. Dan Swangard. He's an anesthesiologist, so I feel like he kind of has all the... He's got all the ingredients. He's got all the the, the ingredients to kind of be a, a good proponent for this. He's an anesthesiologist, so he understands that side of it. He's a physician, obviously, but he, he was diagnosed with cancer. And not only cancer, but the type of cancer that Steve Jobs died from. Mm. And now his cancer... He was able to undergo treatment for it and have it have uh, the tumor removed. And he, I think at the time, this was in 2015 that this article came out. At the time, he, I think they felt like hopefully got all of the cancer, but he also always had it sort of in the back of his mind that it could come back, you know, yeah. things happen. So this is from the Atlantic.com where I found this title of the article is from doctor to patient to from doctor to patient to assisted suicide advocate. And then there's another article from meandmydoctor.com that is from the Texas Medical Association. And the reason I thought this was so fascinating is because their actual stance, official stance on physician-assisted suicide is that they're against it. They do not advocate for it. Yeah, that's what I read. But they did they did put this article on there kind of showing the other side of it. So I kind of appreciated that. I feel like anytime someone is willing to say, I don't agree with this, but then they're willing to kind of open up the dialogue and let other people be let other people's voices be heard and their opinions be heard, it's really healthy. Yeah, I agree. Did they ever explain why they didn't agree with physician assisted suicide? I don't think so. I think it's just sort of like, this is our stance. And I think most medical associations, what I've always heard is that they their job is to do no harm. Sure. You know, they, they take the oath of do no harm. And so it's when you agree to help someone in their death and you're you're doing the opposite of what you promised to do, and that's to help heal people. Sure. I mean, you can take a different look at that as well, which is why this has so many layers, but... The idea of like prolonging inevitable suffering would be doing more harm rather than ending it with a physician-assisted suicide. Yes. Well, there's another. There, there is another layer to this where you, you think about if you say it's okay, it's physician-assisted suicide is okay. Mm-hmm. Where do you draw the line then? Do you say physicians have to assist? Can they say I don't believe in this? Mm-hmm. Or are you? Are, are we going to say you, if if it's legal, if it's okay to do it, then you know you have to prescribe the medicine, or you have to. Yeah. Uh, then you have is our nurses going to then be forced to participate or not participate? I don't know. It's. I feel like it would reach some sort of equilibrium where both sides have autonomy. You know, both sides mm-hmm. can make their own decisions, and there would become, you know, 
new facilities that that specialize in end of life care and and physician assisted suicide. So not every doctor has to be involved with it if they don't want to be. Yeah. A few months ago, I was on another podcast with a nurse. She's actually in medical school and she's going to medical school now, but her name is Jamie and she has a podcast and it's called First Do No Harm. Oh, yeah. But we were, we were talking about this. We were talking about end of life, death with death with dignity, mm-hmm. kind of just all of this stuff. And the thing is that we were talking about is how, because before I went on her podcast, I was sort of looking it up, this whole idea. And what I found interesting is statistically the areas, like the states who have passed this and Oregon, they, they did this like 20 years ago. Yeah. They, you might think that the number of people who are using the opportunity to to die like this would increase. Mm-hmm. And it really hasn't. It's like, it's not like tons and tons of people are using this as an option. Yeah. It's it's not as though, oh, you pass this law and then all everybody's going to start going down this road. It just sort of opens it up to the people who... Who really want it. Yeah. Who really seek it yeah. out. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is interesting. That it didn't necessarily... I can see where the fear comes from. Like, maybe it's going to be a yeah. fad where everyone who's slightly depressed or stubs their toe says, oh, I'll just commit suicide. Right. Misdiagnosis, all these things that can happen. But with this doctor, Dr. Swengard, what I, I like was so interesting is it. he said it sort of forced him to really look at the issue yeah. because he was really staring death in the face, he felt like, because he didn't know what was going to happen. He was thinking about it all the time and wondering if it did happen, what it was going to be like and all that. So it kind of helped him, even even once he was came out on the other side of that, it helped him to decide to get behind it. And he became an advocate for physician-assisted suicide. And this was in 2015. And then in 2016, of course, California passed the law. Uh, the death with the the death with dignity law there, mm. so and I don't I know there's been some things that's kind of gone back and forth with that, but I I'm pretty sure that we've come out on the other side of it that it is acceptable now for a, phys- a physician can prescribe like basically a fatal dose mm-hmm. of right of medication yeah. and then the the patient can take it home and and choose when to take it. Sure, that's what I'm understanding. Okay. And we're still not at a point where a doctor or a nurse or anyone, like any kind of anyone else, can administer it. Yeah. And I'm sure there's doctors that are still really afraid of prescribing yeah. those things. Probably so. Well, I guess that wraps it up for another episode. Thank you so much, Brian. Remind everybody again where they can find you. Yeah. If you want to find me, just look me up on Instagram, the IV guy, or Google IV guy, or go to the IVguy.com. Awesome. And of course, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com or on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I really appreciate you guys emailing me and messaging me and sending me all your stories. And I'm going to, I promise, get around to doing them all at some point. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, (laughs) (laughs) be a good nurse. (laughs) 